So by declaring that South Korea is a foreign hostile state, is he gearing up to be able to use nuclear weapons and justify it? Because you're using it against a hostile state, not against your family member. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Over the last few weeks, there has been a decided change of tone and tenor from North Korea. On January 15th, Kim Jong-un formally declared South Korea to be an enemy state. This is significant for the fact that since the end of the Korean War, the line from Pyongyang was more or less that South Korea was like a wayward relative and would ultimately be reunified with the North. But now, according to Kim and changes he's enacting to the North Korean constitution, the state of South Korea is enemy number one. This move comes on the heels of several geopolitical trends that combined suggest to some longtime North Korea watchers that Kim is readying for war. On the line to explain the significance of this official change in North Korea's policy towards South Korea, why this change is happening now, and what can be done to deter or constrain Kim Jong-un is Su Mi Terry. She is a former CIA analyst, longtime North Korea expert, and producer of the new documentary about North Korea called Beyond Utopia, and it was just nominated for a BAFTA for Best Documentary. Sue Terry is author of a new piece in Foreign Affairs titled The Dangers of Overreacting to North Korea's Provocations, which we discuss in this conversation, and there's a link to that article in the show notes of this episode. As always, feel free to reach out to me with your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I always love hearing from you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatches.org. Please do consider signing up for a paid subscription to globaldispatches.org. You will unlock our entire archive of 10 years of podcast content and get transcripts of these interviews as well as my own analysis of world news delivered to your inbox several times a week. You could also become a premium subscriber by upgrading your subscription directly in the Apple Podcasts app. Now here is my conversation with Sue Me Terry.
So, Sue, we are used to provocations from Kim Jong-un. It's sort of part of the background noise of international affairs at this point. But what has he been saying and doing over the last few weeks that is raising particular concern? What he has done that's particularly concerning is that he actually went against his father and grandfather's policy, which is, that's a very concerning development because his grandfather is godlike figure in North Korea, Kim Il-sung. And he has recently said that reunification with South Korea is an impossible thing, that he's no longer going to pursue unification policy, and that, you know, the two Koreas are no longer, you know, they don't have any kind of kinship. It's not a homogeneous thing. It's a two separate states, belligerent states that are in the middle of war. So Kim Jong-un sort of renounced the unification policy and then declared that South Korea is now going to be the most hostile country in the world and that war is inevitable. So while we're used to all kinds of rhetoric coming out of North Korea, you know, turning Seoul into sea of fire and all that, this is still unusual development. So you've got a lot of Korea watchers concerned about this. And, you know, we're all debating what this means. It seems like it is a just profound shift in ideology. Whereas, you know, before, as you noted, his father, his grandfather all saw the Korean people as one people, and it was their aspiration to kind of reunify them under their tutelage, presumably. But now he's saying, no, South Korea, they are separate. They are an enemy state. Yes, it is a reversal. All this time, they were saying that they were pursuing unification policy, you know, on their own terms, which is obviously not remotely realistic, but at least that's what they said they were pursuing. And now Kim Jong-un saying is, no, unification is unrealistic. South Korea is a hostile state, actually the most hostile country in the world, and they're no longer seeking unification. When did this shift happen? It happened just very recently. So at the end of last year, and as 2023 was closing, you can sort of see the ship. But then on January 15th, I think he went further than usual when he just gave this speech in front of the Supreme People's Assembly on January 15th and said South Korea was the most hostile country and that the war was inevitable with South Korea. And then Kim Jong-un vowed to basically rewrite the constitution, North Korea's constitution, and label South Korea as their primary enemy. And then, you know, he said it's going to be destruction. And actually, there was a destruction of various symbols of of Korean cooperation, including this huge monument that his father, Kim Jong-il, built in Pyongyang. So that's interesting. They had these monuments to the potential reunification of Korea. They were destroying that. My understanding is also there was like this unused rail line that they ripped up as well. And that rail line was like also of symbolic importance. Right. It's unused, this cross-border rail line, but it was a symbol of inter-Korean cooperation for many decades. And so, you know, when you're calling for destruction of these symbolic uh, monuments, including the one that Kim Jong-il built, and he actually called it an eyesore. He actually said it's an eyesore that is ugly, that he needs to rip it up or destroy it. And then he went on to say that any other communication channel would just not be there with South Korea. 
So what do you think explains this change of tone and behavior on the part of Kim Jong-un? You know, there's a lot of different explanations. And of course, we don't know. No one knows. You know, no one, regime intention is one of the hardest things to understand. And we don't know. But I think there are three explanations. And, you know, the most concerning explanation that I think a lot of Korea watchers are concerned about is that by declaring South Korea as North Korea's primary enemy and, and so on, and then by saying that they're no longer, it's not a kinship thing, we're not part of the family, they're basically being able to justify using nuclear weapons in a future mm. conflict because you're not using it against family, right? My entire paternal side of the family came from North Korea, for example. Although Koreans feel like they're still like, you're part of one nation, one country, homogeneous ethnic group, and so on. So by declaring that South Korea is a foreign hostile state, is he gearing up to be able to use nuclear weapons and justify it? Because you're using it against a hostile state, not against your family member. So that's a concerning development, that whether Kim is really establishing ideological basis or moral or logical basis for aggression that could use nuclear weapons. If you want to interpret it in a sort of optimistic way, then people are saying, well, could you also then say Kim Jong-un can one day normalize relations with South Korea because it's, again, a foreign country, right? So U.S. and China, was we were able to normalize relations after 20 years of not talking to each other. So could that also be possible? So that's at least out there as a theory. But I do think that the most realistic explanation is that Yes, they will be able to justify greater aggressive actions against South Korea. But I, I still don't think you know, Kim Jong-un has made a decision to go to war. So why is this change in tone and substance happening now, do you suspect? And you know, to what extent is it influenced by broader happenings in, in geopolitics, in international affairs. I mean, to what extent is this Kim Jong-un looking at the U.S. and the world being consumed by what's happening in Gaza and kind of like reminding people that, hey, you know, I'm here too, pay attention to me. Is that like a factor at all? I do think it's a factor. So there's two things. External environment is actually favorable for North Korea right now because the whole world is really distracted with you know a lot of things going on. And, you know, we have now complete paralysis at the United Nations Security Council where there's no agreement on anything, right? Russia and China are not enforcing sanctions. In fact, Russia and North Korea, there's a whole burgeoning relationship there. So there's no real repercussion to North Korea's actions in terms of external environment. That said, I would say domestically, Kim Jong-un has a lot of problems. There's immense domestic challenges economically and so on. So I do think that it's kind of, these are the factors that sort of made him shift his policy. So I did want to ask you specifically about Russia, which as you noted, may be part of the reason that he's acting a little more emboldened now. We saw this kind of agreement or deal or meeting, I suppose, between Putin and Kim. And we've recently seen Russia use North Korean munitions in Ukraine. And it's widely understood that in return, North Korea got some technical know-how, particularly around weapons systems from Russia. Do we know specifically what knowledge gaps Russian expertise may be filling? 
And, you know, more broadly, to what extent is this closer relationship between Russia and North Korea serving as an impetus for Kim Jong-un's more assertive stance today? So Kim and Putin met on September 13, right? And they are the, right now, world's most isolated leaders. And I do think they are, both have motivations to meet each other because they could help each other, right? And in that particular meeting, it was concerning because, you know, when you look at Kim Jong-un's tours, he included to a fighter jet manufacturing factory and naval base. He inspected military aircraft and ships and so on. And he brought a bunch of generals. So I think it signified strongly that some sort of military cooperation was really part of that recent summit between Kim and Putin. And the likely items that were discussed in that meeting is North Korea providing Russia with artillery shells and short-range missiles and conventional munitions. And we've seen that being used in Ukraine. And then, you know, there's other things that North Koreans can do, right? They can send workers to staff Russian factories and so on. And the concern is, in return for North Korea's assistance, that not only are they getting food and humanitarian aid and, and all that, but Russia's help for North Korea's space and missile programs. So that's sort of the concern. And Putin himself acknowledged in that meeting that mil- military cooperation is possible. And then we saw North Korea successfully launch a satellite missile that they had trouble with. They failed in their earlier attempts last year. It was, I think it was like May and August of last year, but they finally succeeded in November, only two months after that summit that I've just mentioned. So that could be like the fruits of Absolutely. the Russian support on technical know-how is that now they had the successful satellite launch, whereas previously it had failed. That's interesting. Right. Only two months after. So we don't know exactly how, what, whether Russia specifically assisted with new technology with that launch. But I do think that Russia at least provided analysis on previous failures, suggested ways that North Korea could fix the problem for the next launch. So there was a definite help. And I think this was a South Korean intelligence services assessment as well. But regardless of whether Russia specifically assisted with that particular launch, it is the overall trend of that bilateral relationship is very clear. There's enhanced Russia-North Korea cooperation. And we're worried about Russia's future assistance. There were, you know, signals intelligence, human sources, analysis, and sensitive technology that will really allow North Korea to accelerate its development of, you know, not only more capable satellites, but their advanced missile program. And of course, their missile program is advancing. You know, we've been seeing them conduct, I don't know, 100 missile launches, right? It's a very concerning development, this Russia-North Korea nexus. So some analysts have looked at all of this, all that you've just articulated over the last 10 minutes, and have concluded that Kim is gearing up for war with South Korea. You don't necessarily agree. But you do write in a recent foreign affairs piece that, quote, Kim may very well commit a provocation or set a trap to bait South Korea into a clash that could lead to a limited conventional conflict between the two countries. What might that look like and how might that unfold? And why are you dismissive of other analysts who suggest that indeed Kim is gearing up for an imminent war? So I don't mean to be dismissive. Long-time Korea watchers like Bob Collin and Sig Hecker, these are colleagues and they're tremendous 
scholars and Korea watchers, and they raise very legitimate concerns. But you know, when you look at their evidence, there's no hard evidence that Kim wants war. So while there's a concerning developments that we've just been talking about, where's the evidence that he's gearing up for war, right? And we're just talking about him sending artilleries and rockets to Ukraine. Wouldn't you be holding on to those if you are about to go to war? So to me, there's just, not only do they not have you know, present any hard evidence, I still don't understand the rationale behind that. Kim knows if he made a strategic decision to go to war, Right now, he's risking a massive retaliation that will lead to an all-out war, and then his regime would come to an end. And I still believe that Kim Jong-un is a rational actor, and his primary goal is regime survival. So I just don't un- I see the rationale, and I don't see the evidence for it. But yes, he's going to be, there's going to be saber rattling, there's going to be low level of aggression. This is an election year, both for South Korea and presidential election in the United States. He has incentives to act aggressively because that usually led to some sort of concessions and returning to negotiation and all that. And he might want to influence the elections. He probably does. So I do worry about low level aggressions. And that's like more than you know, missile launches, uh, the tests, they will actually launch a missile near South Korean waters, very provocative, send more drones, because that's what they have been doing that, and violate this limit line or this uh, yellow in the Yellow Sea. And they will lead to escalation because whatever North Korea does, we do have a very different president in South Korea. This is no longer a progressive administration. We have a very conservative president in South Korea, uh, Yoon suk and I'm very concerned that if Kim launches something, let's say another shelling, and if a shell hits South Korean territory, President Yoon will return fire exponentially. So that will lead to an escalation cycle that one might not be able to control. And that's concerning development. So you mentioned earlier, and I think it's worth emphasizing just how limited the diplomatic options are at this point to constrain North Korean behavior. You know, in the past, Russia and China were partners in passing Security Council resolutions on North Korea, but you know, it seems that that ship has sailed. Yet at the same time, the U.S., Japan, and South Korea have formalized a new trilateral partnership. To what extent might that new partnership be a bulwark of sorts against North Korean aggression and potentially deter or at least constrain Kim's aggressiveness towards the South? I do think that is probably the only thing that we can really do. You just mentioned dialogue and returning to negotiation is just not possible. Kim Jong-un is not interested in doing that. The Biden administration reached out to North Korea you know, so many times saying they're willing to talk to them unconditionally, but they're not interested. We now have United Nations Security Council completely paralyzed and unable to do anything in terms of sanctions or penalties for North Korea. Well, Russia is violating its sanctions that it itself imposed on North Korea by buying munitions from them. So that's just no longer even a possibility. Right. So there's no way to thwart, you know, Russia-North Korea partnership also. You know, that's just very frustrating for the Biden administration. So... There's just very little hope in the near future of decoupling North Korea from Russia. U.S. has little leverage with either country. So again, the only thing that we can do is what you just mentioned. 
we can strengthen this growing tripartite alliance between U.S., South Korea, and Japan. Now, it took enormous amount of courage from the leaders of South Korea and Japan to get to this point because South Korea and Japan have this long history of animosity. But right now, we have an opportunity to have a this relationship grow to contain and deter North Korea. And I do think that's the only thing that we can do is emphasis on deterrence, right? You know, size and scope of bilateral and trilateral military exercises between Korea, South Korea, Japan, and the United States, missile defense, and really reinvigorating U.S., South Korea, Japan, security, trilateral cooperation. And there's a lot that can be done, so much more that we can do to strengthen trilateral alliance. There's enhanced cooperation on communication, data transfer, exchange of intelligence, missile defense, more robust military exercises, and so on. So North Korea's missile forces are expanding. Their WMD program is expanding. They will become increasingly more sophisticated, particularly with assistance from Russia. But there's one opportunity, and that is strengthening U.S.-South Korea-Japan alliance relationship. So the U.S., the Biden administration is obviously rather distracted and, you know, understandably so by the situation in the Middle East. But if you were, you know, advising the Biden administration, if you're back in government, what would you suggest as the you know most optimal policy options right now to prevent or deter North Korea from acting on its newly aggressive posture towards the South? You know, it's very, very difficult for the Biden administration because, again, you know, what more can they do when they reached out to North Korea? And I just don't think Kim Jong-un is interested in returning to dialogue, not with the Biden administration. He's going to wait until the election, see if President Trump returns, which is clearly more favorable outcome from Kim Jong-un's perspective. And if it's the Biden administration that returns a second term, then, you know, maybe at that point, at some point, they might consider returning to dialogue. But right now, I don't think there's any chance for dialogue. What that means is we have to strengthen deterrence. And Washington as whole, and Tokyo, they've already done that. They are shifting to emphasis on deterrence. For example, Washington and Seoul are expanding size and scope of bilateral military exercises that were suspended under the Trump administration. They are dispatching U.S. military assets to Northeast Asia and so on. So I do think this is the only realistic thing that's possible. Another policy challenge and something that we need to think about, and I do think the Biden administration is thinking about that, is South Korea, for example, is very concerned. And they have a lot of questions surrounding extended nuclear deterrence. So on that front, I think there's also a lot more work that can be done to make South Koreans feel that we are going to be there for them. Like the idea that if North Korea attacks South Korea with a nuclear weapon, the U.S. would respond in kind. Right. We do have that, except I think, you know, poll after poll in South Korea shows more South Korean people supporting South Korea developing their own indigenous nuclear capability because they are getting nervous, right? And President Trump potentially returning also makes the Koreans nervous because President Trump have talked about potentially putting U.S. forces out of South Korea. There were very tough negotiations in the past over burden sharing and so on. So I do think we can do more you know, on the extended deterrence front 
to make them feel that we're not going to necessarily abandon them. So in the coming weeks or months, is there anything that you're looking towards in North Korea? Any statements, any inflection points, any actions from North Korea that will suggest to you what the next iteration of this escalating, apparently escalating crisis might be? Well, I'll be looking, I mean, I don't know how much more they can say in, in terms of rhetoric. They've already said pretty scary things rhetoric-wise. You know, I'll be watching out for the northern limit line and potential border clashes. I worry about something like what happened in 2010 when North Koreans sank South Korean Corvette that killed 46 South Korean sailors when they shelled this island, Yeonpyeong and kill several South Korean citizens. I worry about events like that because again, as I mentioned, we have a very different administration in South Korea. Back in 2010, former President Lee Myung-bak also wanted to respond. It was actually US government that held him back. And so now I'm concerned that if President Yoon responds, there'll be escalation. So I'd be sort of worried about that kind of aggressive actions coming out of North Korea. You know, along those lines, lastly, you know, it's been since 2017 since North Korea has last tested a nuclear weapon. From what you are seeing, the rhetoric and the actions in North Korea, are they readying for another nuclear test? I mean, you know, we discussed earlier how the Security Council is now really unable to constrain North Korea. But, you know, after these past previous nuclear tests, the Security Council did act, but it wouldn't likely in the future. So are you concerned about a potential new nuclear test? I am concerned. There are also other tests that they can conduct, and they, you know, I'm worried about that as well. But certainly, I do think seventh nuclear test is possible. Again, this is an election year, perhaps right before the U.S. presidential election. I, I do think, you know, they, you know, last several years, actually, we thought that test was coming. And so we were sort of preparing for it, we as in the Korea watchers. So I do think seventh nuclear test is very much possible. And again, what's the repercussion? Who is going to do what? I mean, already those sanctions are not being implemented. What is the U.S. government going to do about it? Sue, thank you so much for your time. Congrats on your film. And also, I encourage everyone to check out that article in Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.